Hey, it's good to be back with you guys. My name is Andrew. I am one of the leaders here. Uh, and I was out this last week. I was in Florida. And so uh, it was funny. I was through t- all Tuesday and Tuesday night. I'm like texting our whole staff team multiple times to be like sending me updates and wanting them to go like Facebook Live and stuff. So I missed you guys last week. And I'm going to be out here in a couple more weeks for a Tuesday or two. So, um, so I look forward to these times when we're together and we get to sit under God's word. And so let me pray for us and for our time. If you do have a Bible, why don't you flip that open? Uh, we're going to be in Hebrews again as we work through this this semester uh, in Hebrews. So go Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to pray and then we'll get in. Father God, thank you so much for bringing us here tonight as a community. Uh, God, I pray for all of us that our hearts would be uh, captured by you tonight. Um, God, that the, the foremost that we see is your son exalted and lifted high. God, uh, we need you. I pray for my tongue that you would guard me from any error, that you would lead me and guide me. Would you give everyone in the room sharp minds and soft hearts to your gospel, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, who is a, who's a role model in your life? I want you to think about someone uh, that you would say is kind of a, a role model. Maybe, maybe even you'd go so far to say a hero for you. Someone that, that you kind of want to emulate. Someone that you want to be like. A role model. Maybe uh, for some of you, you can kind of scan through all of history and you kind of pick some of the people that you think were just movement makers, right? These, these big shakers that change the world. Maybe you think of people that, that just exemplified love, like, like maybe Gandhi or, or Mother Teresa. Maybe you think of, of leaders, people that did things like, like George Washington or old kings or presidents of old that really shaped how the world works. Maybe you can think of even, for some of you, uh, people that shaped religions, like Muhammad or the Buddha, right? They, they have these ideas that, that shaped how people see God and, and the world. Who's a role model for you? Maybe it's even closer to home and you'd say, man, it's just my parents. It's my mom or my dad or my older brother or sister. Maybe it's somebody in your life that has meant a lot. That you would say, man, I just, I think about them. I talk about them. I I try to mimic them. How they live is kind of this this status I want to get to. Who would be a role model for you? I think as we're, we're studying through the book of Hebrews... That if you would ask, you know, a couple thousand years ago, if you were to ask the, the, the primarily Jewish audience that's reading this, I would bet most of them, if you said, man, who's a role model in your life, they would shout out Moses. Right? Maybe some of us know Moses in the Old Testament, but, but for Jewish people, Moses was kind of supreme. He, in some people's minds, were, was exalted as maybe the greatest man that ever lived. If you think of, man, who do I want to live like, they would say Moses. So like you would come up with anybody, I think they would say probably Moses. Now as we continue on through our study of Hebrews, the author, the, the, the preacher of this book is going to kind of press in on this point. He's going to kind of speak into this idea of their exalted view of Moses. And what he's going to do is he's going to look at us and he's going to say, man, if you answer that question, like, like who are you fixing your mind on? Who is uh, th- this exalted kind of person? That if it's anybody other than Jesus, you're wrong. 
right? I mean, it's kind of the cliche Sunday school answer, right? But, but what he's going to say is, look, if it's Moses, if it's anybody else, you're wrong. That the person that we primarily focus on has to be Jesus. What he's going to say is that we must see Jesus as supreme. Why? He's going to argue that our endurance depends on it. I said this a couple weeks ago, that, that what the author's trying to do in Hebrews, what I'm trying to do each Tuesday night, is help us as a community endure till the end. And over the next few chapters, he's going to speak into this idea, and he's going to say, man, here's a couple things I want you to do so that you make it. Right? These are a couple things that I long for for you guys, that you're not just here having fun on a Tuesday night, but that you're filled with the fuel to make it till the end. That you have what it takes to get there. And what he's going to say tonight is that you have to see Jesus as supreme above anybody else if you're going to make it to the end. So my big idea for tonight is this. This is the whole thing. What I think he's going to argue is that because of who Jesus is, we must focus on him to endure. Simply because of who Jesus is, we must focus on him to endure. And so we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3, just reading verses 1 through 6 that Jared read for us before. And we're going to look at this and we're going to see three reasons, three uh, aspects of who Jesus is as to why we should focus on him. Right? Because especially if, you, if you're a non-Christian in the room tonight, if you're not a believer in this yet and you're just kind of here checking things out, if I make a statement that, that you need to see Jesus as supreme, you should be asking why? Right? You should be asking, man, that's a bold claim. Why should I see, who is Jesus that I should see him and fix my mind on him? And for Christians, I think if you're a believer, we need this message just as much because if you're anything like me, I know that our hearts have the tendency to drift, right? That we kind of lose focus of Jesus sometimes. That is, the, the busyness of the semester begins rolling. As it feels like the snowball is kind of going, picking up steam, it is so easy for us to lose our gaze and just kind of wander away. We need this text tonight if we're going to have the fuel to endure. So we're going to see three reasons as to why Jesus should be supreme. So the three things are this, that Jesus is faithful to God, Jesus is the builder of God's house, and Jesus is the anointed son. He is faithful to God, the builder of God's house, and the anointed son. So look with me in verses 1 and 2. The author writes, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. Friends, we must consider Jesus because he was faithful to God, the text says. So the the author here begins by addressing the church. He says, holy brothers, those who share in a heavenly calling. He's speaking to the church. He's primarily speaking to Christians here. He's saying, hey, for those of you who believe. And then he gives us the only, the only imperative, the only command in this whole section. He says, consider Jesus. So this is our call for tonight. This is it. We're going to read six verses. This is the only thing we're supposed to do is consider 
Jesus. Now, uh, I was talking about this with McGill last night, and we were talking through, and he's like, you know, when you read this in English, it seems kind of like a, a soft suggestion, right? Like, you just kind of read this, and it's like, oh, yeah, just think about Jesus. You know, it's kind of a throwaway Christian cliche. Like, you're just like, you know, consider him, right? When we, when we hear this word consider, we don't think it has a ton of, of weight, right? A ton of uh, oomph behind it, you know what I mean? Like, it's just kind of this idea of like, yeah, just think about him. But in the original language that this is writing in, it's, it's not really a, a soft suggestion. This is a, it's an implored command. He's commanding these people. He's saying, hey, consider Jesus. It carries this connotation of fix your, your thoughts on him. Lay, lay your eyes upon Jesus. And this isn't a, a one-time thing for him. This, this is a continual command that he's giving them. He's saying, hey, you have to put your mind, put him first in your mind. I think he does this because, because honestly, where, where we set our minds will direct our life. I think we've talked about this before, that, that, that what's in front of us, what our minds are set on, what's running through our minds will direct how we live. So, so let me just put this in, into our context here. If you know, we're a room full of college students, if you're a guy and you might be a little girl crazy, or if you're a girl and you're a little guy crazy right now, um, which I know there's some of you, not you, of course, but somebody else, your friend, but if you know them and they're you know, a little bit boy crazy, what they're doing is it, it's what's in your mind, what's focused, what's at the forefront of your mind really changes and kind of alters how you're living. I, mean, I remember this when I was in college, and I was single, and I uh, was starting to like my now wife, Bailey, and so it kind of just changes how things work, right? So I, I, she became on the forefront of my mind. I started thinking about her more often. And, and you kind of do this thing where, you know, I started like dressing a little bit nicer. I didn't wear sweatpants quite as much and bought some new shoes. And, you know, I kind of, we do this thing, especially guys where you, you kind of talk differently, like around girls. And it's just weird, like it, it's, it's weird and you're not fooling anybody. But we try to do this thing where, where it kind of shapes how we act. It shapes, you know, there were certain places where I knew she would be, and, and that kind of set my schedule, right? I was like, if there was a party, like, I was going to go if she was there. It changes some things about us, right? What's at the forefront of your mind kind of directs how you talk, how you think, and how you live. It's the same thing, uh, you can give the example of, uh, you know, for many of you, if you think about the news or you think about politics, especially right now, if you were to talk to me about politics or your views on government or, or President Trump or whatever, I could probably tell you where you're getting your news from, right? I mean, just the, the honest truth, like whatever is coming in, whatever you're reading, like if you're primarily reading Fox News, I could probably assume that you thought Obama was like the Antichrist or something. Or, or if you're primarily watching MSNBC, you might be thinking that all Republicans are bumbling idiots, right? I mean, what, what's in front of you and what you're thinking and reading and hearing, what's set in front of you, dictates kind of how you see the world. It changes how you do things. And I think that the author is kind of playing on this idea, and he's saying, friends, we've got to have Christ in that position, we got to have Christ at the forefront of our mind, and that's going to determine how you live. That's going to determine the things that you say, the way that you treat people, how you live your life. And he's pleading with them here. He's saying, consider Jesus. Put this on the forefront of your mind. Now, again, the question then should be, why? 
Why consider Jesus? When there's a thousand things in the world to think about and to lead me and to direct me, why consider Jesus? Well, the first reason he gives that we must consider Jesus, he says, is that he was faithful to him who appointed him. So the first reason is that Jesus was faithful to God. Now, oftentimes, if you come to church, you'll oftentimes hear of the faithfulness of God or the faithfulness of Jesus. But usually what we talk about is Jesus' faithfulness to us, right? When we say things like, man, Jesus is faithful, what we mean is that he's being faithful to us. But that's not what the, the author's saying here. He's saying that he was actually faithful to him who appointed him. So what he's saying is that we should focus on Jesus because he was faithful to God. Now, simple question, what does that mean? How can Jesus, if he's God, how can he be faithful to God and why does that matter? Well, I think the answer comes in the two titles that the author gives Jesus. So look at verse 1. He says, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest. Now, that may sound weird to you, because this is actually the only place in the entire New Testament where Jesus is called an apostle. And the only place in the New Testament that Jesus is called high priest is actually found in Hebrews. These are two ideas that are solely in Hebrews. So why does he say that he was faithful? Because he was an apostle and high priest. Well, to define these kind of terms, uh, apostle simply means one who is sent, a sent one. And a high priest was a mediator, somebody who stood in the gap between sinful men and women and a holy God. So these are the two things he's telling him here. So I think what he's trying to say is that if we read through the Bible, what we find is that in the very beginning, Adam and Eve were created, and God gives them a command. He says, you can can live and work and, and rule over everything, but don't do this one thing. He gives them one command, and they break it. Romans 5 says that because they sinned, then everybody else, including us in the room, have fallen into sin. And this idea is big because what God requires from us is perfect faithfulness and worship of him. So if we, all of us included, are unfaithful to God, there is this chasm between God and us, that all the brokenness and sinfulness in us and in our world comes because we are separated from God. And since God can't just tell you, I know that you've sinned before, but just try to clean your act and come to me because we have a real guilty record, God sent one. He sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus came to fulfill the requirement that you and I had. See, we were required to be fully faithful to God and live fully in righteousness to him, and we failed. So Jesus came, he says, to seek and save those who are lost. In other words, he came to be faithful for all of us who are unfaithful. And then he calls him this high priest. The high priest is one who offers sacrifices for sinful people so that they could be right with God. And Jesus, when he came... He didn't just offer up another goat and shed its blood, but he actually offered up himself. The one who was sent and acquired faithfulness and didn't deserve to die hung on a tree so that we have what we call the great exchange, that all of your unfaithfulness was put on him and all of his faithfulness is now yours if you have faith in him. You see, he's saying here we have to consider Jesus 
Because what you need to be right with God is only found in the faithfulness of Jesus. That, that if you want to be made whole and be made right and be with God, you need a faithfulness that you can't earn. And he didn't just come and show you the way. He came and actually gave it to you in his death. We have to consider Jesus because without him we have no way of getting to God. He is our sent one to be faithful and the one who sacrificed himself for us. He was faithful to God. But then the author goes on. Look at verse 3. He says, For Jesus has been counted more worthy, or worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So what he's saying here is we have to consider Jesus because he is the builder of God's house. Now he's playing on this imagery of a house, which we'll see here. But again, he brings up Moses once again. He brings up Moses, and he kind of does this comparing. So in verses 1 and 2, he said, Jesus was faithful, as Moses was also a faithful example, and he's playing on their, their view of Moses. But now he says, you know, and Jesus was actually even more faithful. He was more faithful than Moses because he's worthy of more glory, just as a builder has more honor than what he builds. So what he's going to say here is that Moses, or insert whoever you're thinking, right? Whoever has this great life that you're emulating, whoever is this role model in your life, he's saying as much faithfulness as that person has, Jesus has more. As good of a life as that person is living, Jesus is actually better. As much uh, glory as they may even give to God, Jesus is actually the glory of God. He's showing us here that that Jesus is actually more glorious. Well, he says this, and he uses the illustration of a house. So what we find uh, here is that he says Moses, Moses is a member of the house, but Jesus is the builder of the house. So think about this. If you see uh, a building, right? Even look at the Omar, right? We see this building, and it looks cool in here, right? It's modern, it's nice, and, and there's obviously some work that has been done in here, and they've built this thing. And we know as we look around, and we see, man, this is a really cool space. I mean, nobody thinks that it just, like, popped up. I mean, it didn't just, like, form itself, right? And we look around, and we say, man, whoever designed this space, I mean, he's pretty good. Or you can look at a big mansion, and you can see that, and you can see, man, this house is, is just so big and massive, and it's intricate, and has all these cool things. Man, whoever designed this house, man, they were, they were good, right? As more glorious as the house is, the more glory that the builder gets. You know, Bailey and I bought a house this, uh, this last March, and it was in pretty rough shape. I mean, it was pretty broken down, and so we got into it, and we kind of tore the thing down uh, on the inside, and then we kind of built it back up, right? And if you've been a part of this, any renovations, you've been part of a, a building of something like this, if you get people to come over, what they don't do is they, they don't say, man, this is a beautiful house. I wonder how it got here. No, they look at it, and they say, man, this is beautiful. I'm really impressed that you did this. Like, man, you must really be good at, at this to, to build this, to make this look that good, right? As beautiful as the house is, the more glory that the builder gets. And what we find in this text 
is that as he's using this idea of a house, he's actually speaking of the people of God. And what he's saying here is that while Moses, he was good, and he was a part of the people of God, and he was, uh, you know, a beam in the house, right? And that was great. But Jesus isn't just a piece of the house. He's actually the builder of the house. That he is the one who actually takes broken, dead, and ugly beings and makes them new in him. That he's the one, using Matthew 16, that actually builds his church. So he said, I promise I will build my church. That for any of us in the room, if you're a Christian, you are here and you're a believer in Jesus solely because Jesus has taken a dead sinner and made him alive in him. You see, we had no way of building up the house. We have no way of cleaning ourselves off enough, but Jesus has come in and he's building the household of God. I want you to consider that this means your life, the way you live, the way you talk, the way you treat people, it actually matters. Because as people see the house, the more beautiful the house, the more glory the builder gets. This is why Jesus, when he talks about saving people, he talks about transforming them. He talks about changing you. He talks about making you new because as you become new, God gets more glory. This means that when we walk in holiness, when we walk with him, when we exalt him, when we live differently than the world, it actually matters because it's actually giving God more glory than if we didn't. And this in no way means that you've done this by yourself because a a dead sinner can't make himself alive, but a transformed sinner has part in becoming more like Christ. He's saying God gets the glory because he's the builder of of the house, and this means that the way we live, the way we treat people actually matters. So we must consider Jesus because he was the faithfulness you couldn't earn, and he's the builder of the household of God. But lastly, we say, uh, or I say that we, we must consider Jesus because he is the anointed son. Look at verse 5. He says, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So we have to consider Jesus because he is faithful to God. He's the builder of the house But we also consider him because although he came in the form of man, he wasn't just like us. You know, if this language sounds kind of familiar, he's actually kind of going back to Hebrews 1 where he says, you know, long ago in many ways God spoke via prophets like Moses, right? He was a servant speaking to the things that were to come. But in Hebrews 1 it says he used to speak that way, but now he speaks through his son. And here he's playing off that and saying, you know, Moses was one of the prophets and he was a great faithful man, but he was speaking to somebody else. He wasn't just a good man and you should, you know, cling to Moses. He says he's actually testifying to the son that would come. Moses was a messenger, but Jesus was the actual message of God who came to us. We find throughout all of Hebrews that he's actually the eternal son 
of God, that he wasn't just another mere prophet that came onto the scene that says, hey, go look at God. But he said, I came to seek and save the lost, and I am the way. The Son came to us. You see, Moses was a great example of pointing to the gospel. But Jesus came to unleash the gospel, that he was the word made flesh to come to us. And here we get an interesting word that we haven't seen yet. He's the eternal son, but he also calls him the Christ. Now that sounds familiar. We use this in, in the church when we talk about this idea of Christ. But this is actually the first time that the Hebrews author uses it. And the Christ, if, again, if you're a Jewish person, so we've got to get out of ourselves, back into this time. When they read Christ, what they think of is this word Christ means kind of an anointed the anointed one. When they anoint somebody, they anoint him as king. So when he's transitioning here, saying, you know, Jesus was faithful to God, that he was the builder of God's house, and now he says he is Christ. He is the Christ, and he is faithful. There's a tense switch there, that he did something, but now it says Christ is faithful over God's house. The way that they would read this is, now the king is faithful over God's house as a son. He's not just the son of God. He is now the king. And so I'd ask you, how often do you consider Jesus as the king, the anointed one, the risen king who is alive and ruling and reigning today? You know, so often I think as we think of Jesus, we think of the, the meager servant, the lamb who was led to the slaughter. And while that is important, that is not his role right now. He is, he is the lamb that, was, that shed his blood, and now he is the ascended king who is ruling and reigning on high. How often when you think of Jesus, do you see him ruling and reigning today? You know, in my own life, I think, man, so often I, I wander and I struggle in sin and I wrestle with things and drift away because, honestly, I don't see Jesus as king today. So often in our culture, even when we talk about Jesus, we just talk about him as this, like, meager person that's just begging you to like him. And that's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. Jesus is the king who is risen and who is reigning Today, Jesus is the one who is sitting on high, Hebrews 1 said. How often do we consider and focus our minds on the king? Friends, I think this changes how we live if we know that Jesus is alive and ruling and reigning today. So friends, I would ask you, would you consider Jesus? This week, would you Put him on the forefront of your mind. The author here in Hebrews says that that changes things. That changes how you live. We're going to see that over the next couple of chapters. And he's going to say your endurance till the end matters. And the way that you do that is by viewing Jesus as ultimate. That he came and fulfilled the requirement that you couldn't earn. That he is building his church. He is building his people today. And he is doing that as the ascended king on high. Friends, would we see Jesus this way? Would we walk in life with him as our king? Would we fix our eyes on him? Let me pray. Father God, 
I pray for us as a culture, as a people and a community, God, that we would see you as glorious, that we would see you as reigning on high, that we would not have a poor and shallow view of who you are. God, I pray for those of us in the room who, who are drifting, who feel like we're wandering, even tonight. Would your spirit help put you at the forefront? And God, would you uh, just exalt yourself even now as we respond in musical worship? God, would we see you as you should be seen? Would we see you rightly? Would we trust in you, that you will keep us to the end, that your spirit will put you at the forefront of our minds, and that we would worship you wholeheartedly. God, I pray for all of us in the room that we would make it till the end because you have filled us with the fuel to get there. God, we trust you, we love you, and we need your help. Pray this in Jesus' name.